Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray, Ryan Ray here, as always, and thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, today we have on a guest who I'm excited to get on because he wrote a book that to me is, I don't, know, I don't know if I want to say the central issue with the U.S.-China relationship, but it's a central point that should be talked about more. The book is The War on the Uyghurs, China's International Campaign Against a Muslim Community. And my guest is Sean Roberts, who is the Director of International Development Studies program at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Mr. Roberts, it is so good to have you on today. How are you doing, sir? Very good. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so let's talk about, I'm, I'm curious before we get into the book and kind of in the situation in general, where do you think the Uyghurs play a role? Um, for me, it's an issue that, you know, if I were, I think President Trump um, in John Bolton's book, Criticizing President Trump, he, he accused President Trump of being transactional with China and other spots. Um, to me, on some level, that, that's true, obviously. But uh, when you look at the Uyghurs or Hong Kong or some of these other issues, a lot of the world is very transactional with China and stuff like this kind of gets swept under the rug. Um, where do you think this issue should be with U.S. or other international, um, uh, other Western allies when they talk to China? Should it be a, a first issue, secondary issue, third issue? I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that. I think it should be pretty central. I think, I mean, what, what we're seeing is, um, I think in the last four years, um, China's been become very emboldened in terms of its human rights abuses. And uh, I think the message should be, you know, not that um, we're in direct competition with China, but um, that, in order for China to, to really um, be a central part of the global economy, it has to be a responsible um, actor. And it has to observe um, some of these international norms. And, uh, and that goes you know, beyond norms related to trade and things like that, but norms related to the treatment of, of their own population because this issue is this issue with the Uyghurs, um, you know, is about not only uh, what the state's doing to its uh, citizens in this case, its Uyghur citizens, but it's also about some of the technologies it's using uh, to repress them and oppress them. That um, it's also marketing to other countries in the world. I think it's it sets a really dangerous precedent that. Um, might really uh, pull us out of uh, you know a, a rights-based world order. Okay, so for our listeners who go, I, I've kind of heard the term. Uh, I, I'm I'm from the south, I'm a redneck, so I say Uyghur, Uyghur, however you want to however you say it. But they're like, hey, I've heard this term. I've seen this funny thing uh, shaped, uh, funny spelled name. Uh, who are these people? How they end up in China? Where are they at in China? I didn't know Muslims were in China. Maybe give us a, a short overview of who these people are and how they got to where they are today. And then we'll talk about why they're being persecuted after that. Sure. Um, so uh, the Uyghurs are a Turkic speaking people. So um, their language is mutually intelligible with uh, Uzbek. Um, it's related to Turkish. Um, it's it's not related to the Chinese language. It's completely separate. Uh, it's as a people, they're really more connected to Central Asia, the areas in the former Soviet Union. Um, people often refer to as the stands: Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Turkmenistan. Um, 
culturally and historically than they are to China. Yet um, they're on the Chinese side of the border in Central Asia, sort of speak. So, you know, for a long time, going back to uh, the 19th century, even the 18th century, there was kind of, um, there was, there was competition between China and Russia in the region that um, led to uh, basically different colonial outposts, um, either controlled by Chinese empires or particularly the Qing empire, the last Chinese empire uh, on one side and the Russian empire on the other side. Um, and, you know, I think for much of the period where um, the areas were colonized, uh, there was not significant Russian or Chinese presence in the sense that um, the local populations were able to constantly interact and cross the border back and forth. Um, you know, that changes more when you have the establishment of the Soviet Union and the establishment of the People's Republic of China in particular. And especially when you have the Sino-Soviet split, which really um, means that the border becomes closed, uh, you know, after about 1961. Um, so, you know, really, I don't see this this area as inherently a part of China. Uh, the Chinese government is um, very adamant about uh, kind of a party line that this area has always been part of China and the Uyghur people are not indigenous to it, um, you know, which, which I think is, is, is completely untrue, but um, it's something they're very adamant about. Um, most Uyghurs uh, view the area as their homeland and um, there's, there's always been tensions over that issue. Uh, and the Chinese government's never really resolved those tensions um, by establishing any kind of uh, even limited sovereignty. So like um, the, the region that the Uyghurs live in is technically called uh, Xin, the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Um, but the region, um, has never really had any uh, autonomy whatsoever, um, or at least any ethnic autonomy. Um, in some ways, it's been autonomous to the detriment of the Uyghurs because the Chinese state can employ different policies there than it can uh, elsewhere, um, but there's not been a Uyghur control over that autonomy. Um, you know, so one difference, for example, between the Chinese system of autonomous ethnic um, regions and the Soviet system of Soviet republics is technically in the Soviet uh, constitution, it said the republics could secede. And there was a, a concept in the Soviet Union that these were essentially, this was a federation of different nations. In China, um, the constitution does not stipulate that this area can secede. Uh, and it doesn't, uh, it, it hasn't really um, uh, resulted in any sort of um, kind of ethnic autonomy whatsoever. Okay, and so um, 
you, you touched on a few things there. I want to circle back to, but is there a parallel for kind of the, the Westerner who doesn't understand all the intricacies of, you know, Islam? Um, if these people were anywhere else in the world, would they have, um, uh, you know, like would they be more Sunni, Shiite that we might see in mm. some, some other spots? Because one of the things yeah. I remember following is um, last year Iran struck a deal with uh, with China, and people were criticizing Iran because they always are claiming that they're a champion of Muslim rights around the world, and you're like, well, what's going on here? So are these kind of maybe I don't want to say outcasts, but kind of separate? You kind of distinguish some of the book, but for the, the point of the, the listeners, are they kind of outcast, or are they? Would they be find allies across the Muslim world, and why is the Muslim world not speaking up about this? Yeah, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons the Muslim world's not speaking out about this is that, um, to a large extent, um, the Central Asian Muslims have always been kind of detached from uh, global Islamic movements. Um, and, you know, for, for, to some degree, I think um, the Muslims of the Middle East don't really um, look at a lot of Muslims in Asia, including places like Malaysia, Indonesia, as that close to um, them culturally um, and historically. Uh, in terms of the straight kind of theological answer, um, the Uyghurs are generally Sunni, um, but because they've been detached from global um, Islamic movements, uh, Really, they have they have a I think a fairly unique kind of um, uh, religiosity, and this is true also in in the rest of Central Asia, former Soviet Central Asia. For one, the regions um, before uh, they kind of became subject to uh, communism and um, a more vehement uh, atheism. Uh, were, were very dominated by Sufi traditions, which, you know, are also very different around the world. Sufism is a mystical form of Islam, and it often incorporates um, kind of pre-Islamic traditions. Uh, it's, it's very focused on the idea of doing pilgrimages to uh, the sites of saints locally. So it's kind of, it's embedded in local culture, um, less than, you know, kind of the major pilgrimage to Mecca and so on. Um, so as a result, I, I think Uyghurs um, and most Central Asian peoples uh, have a, a real diversity of religiosity. You know, there's people who um, uh, look at religion more the way that, um, you know, some what are often referred to in the U.S. as lapsed Catholics. You know, they would, they would say, "Yes, I'm Catholic, but I don't really go to church." You know, so there's there's a lot of uh, Uyghurs and people in Soviet Central Asia as well. You know, who will drink um, alcohol, um, but they consider themselves Muslims. They're, they're more culturally Muslim. Then you have people who've um, kind of uh, latched onto different types of Islam. So it's a, it's a very diverse um, uh, population, religiously speaking. Um, and I don't think that there, you know, there, there has been that real connection with the Arab world. That's part of it, of course, why the Muslim world's not reacting to this. But I think another part of it is very obviously um, the economic ties that the Muslim world has with China. 
Um, and this is most uh, in economic and political. I mean, this is most obvious in Pakistan, which um, you know is also detached in many ways from the Arab world, and it's it's pretty closely connected with the Central Asian world, but. Um, Pakistan has been completely silent on this issue. And Imran Khan has even uh, said several times, well, I don't really know what's happening there. Um, but that's because, uh, you know, over the last decade, Pakistan has increasingly become uh, a client state of the People's Republic of China. There's so much investment uh, through the Belt and Road Initiative, which in Pakistan is called CPEC. That is, um, that is, you know, ensuring that the, the Pakistan government would would not take any kind of um, contrary position to, to uh, China right now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So let's talk about um, propaganda and kind of how that works. It's I have two interviews today with uh, kind of foreign policy folks, yourself and I have a Scott Horton on. And Scott Horton's thesis is that um, a lot of what the U.S., um, after 9-11, um, propagated as far as um, what you know, uh, bin Laden, those were saying, was not exactly what they were saying. It was kind of, um, if you go back and read bin Laden's writings, um, when he's talking about something different. But regardless, 9-11 happened, and, and you got to kind of deal with that and, and, and how you deal with it. But 9-11 not only impacted our country, it impacted people around the world and not the ones that we went to war with. It seems that there's a connection between our war on terror and, and what happened in China, um, which, which was... I've heard kind of people talk about it and then, you know, obviously in your book and, and studying some more, it was kind of a fascinating thing to, to think about that um, talking through these issues. And then when, when you break that down and you say, okay, well, you know, you, you have all of these intricacies and it, it, as a Westerner, it's always hard to kind of understand, you know, how does the Middle East think? Cause that's a broad term. As you've, as you've astutely pointed out, how does China think that's a broad term. Um, it, it's, it's hard to cut through the propaganda, especially when people are out openly promoting propaganda. So, you know, how did you kind of decipher all this and work through it? And how do you keep a straight path on understanding what China is saying about why they started this and were they being consistent or whether they're not, um, you know, it, it, it seems like it's a big task to tackle. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think particularly in today's world, you know, with, with the use of social media, you know, the Chinese government is extensively using uh, social media. Um, you know, one of the points I make in my book about the global war on terror is that um, I find that the, I didn't really realize this until I started writing the book because, um, you know, I, I became interested in the issue because even prior to the uh, present crackdown, which is, you know, much, much worse than, um, you know, five years ago when, when I started, you know, thinking about writing this book, um, you know, I, I was talking to Uyghurs and finding out about um, how uh, uh, how they had been impacted by the war on terror. And I also had known that the US government had identified uh, a Uyghur group in Afghanistan very early in 2002 uh, as being a terrorist group. And I, I was always very suspicious of that. So I wanted to delve deeper into that um, question. But one of the things I found um, when I started doing the research is that even though the U.S. has been at war for, you know, uh, almost, I guess, getting close to 20 years now yeah. um, with terrorism, there's no internationally accepted uh, definition of terrorism. Um, and it's interesting when you look at the, the 
the literature on terrorism, they, they say, well, you know, yes, that's a problem, but um, we kind of know what terrorism is. But I think that, that that's a much bigger problem than people realize because um, it's such an explosive term and it's easy to use against your opponents. And, you know, some people would suggest that um, the US um, kind of manipulated the term when they um, started the war in Iraq. Uh, you know, the, the, the famous um, weapons of mass destruction and questions about whether, you know, this was really about terrorism or about something else. Um, but it's very vivid elsewhere in the world. There's lots of examples where countries have attacked domestic opponents uh, by branding them as terrorists and justifying essentially, you know, the suspension of their human rights. And that's what happened um, to the Uyghurs, uh, particularly when the U.S. identified this one group um, and put it on the terrorism exclusion list. The Chinese government um, subsequently framed all of their um, attacks on any kind of Uyghur resistance dissent to the state as um, counterterrorism, um, which, which, you know, in the context, uh, if you can remember back to the early 2000s, um, often in the international community kind of gave uh, countries carte blanche to do oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. some really, really evil things. No, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. And, and as you're unpacking that, and I'm kind of going back through and thinking about, um, you know, Know, the you know us going into Afghanistan and then to Iraq and um, and then kind of the war on terror and you know it's like okay well now we got the war on terror and then you, know, you got North Korea which is tied up with the war on terror I never really understood you know, the axis of evil in Iran it's like uh, and then you know hearing how that's and then I've never thought about it from the perspective of and I don't know if, I don't know if we should have a definition for terrorist or not I see what you're saying I definitely see what you're saying like it's it's, it's a valid point um, but without without having one you're like well okay these guys are terrorists and you know if, if they're terrorists then Therefore, we can send them down to Gitmo and do this, or we, we can go do this. And um, we see what the U.S. has done. And so I've never thought about the broad implications of that globally. That's, that's a fascinating um, perspective, because as you as you walk through it there, it, it makes a lot of sense. But um, on the Uyghurs particularly, I'm curious, maybe unpack for our listeners what's been done to these people um, you know, over, over these last 20 years. Um, and, and particularly talk about, um, if you can, um, the the change of language um, and 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 how that might reshape a people. I thought some of the, I thought that was an interesting point that was made uh, in the book, and, and I'm curious about that because, um, well, well I'll, I'll, just, I'll just respond. I'll, I'll tell you some of my thoughts on it in a minute. But go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting, um, you know, I, I frame what's happening to the Uyghurs as colonialism, and particularly. Um, what's referred to as settler colonialism, which is has been um, identified as kind of a more violent colonialism because um, you really need to push the people off the land because um, the the colonists are settling that land. Um, you know, so uh, one uh, unfortunate example of this in our past is um, you know the the colonization of the West. Um, and when, when we started removing Native Americans from their territory um, so that people coming to America could fill those spaces. Um, and that often involves 
um, you know, one, removing the people from, from their land, and two, um, uh, a lot of depopulation, because, you know, if, if they, they at one time uh, inhabited an expanse of land, um, you have to start thinking about how do we make this group smaller, and, and eventually, you know, just marginalizing and making them unimportant to the governance of this land. And, and that's what I see has been happening to the Uyghurs in the last four years, but it's, it's, uh, it has historical roots because, you know, as I mentioned, this area was originally conquered by the Qing dynasty in the mid 18th century. They ruled it really loosely, more as like a protectorate for about a hundred years. Uh, then there were some rebellions that kicked the Qing, the Qing empire out of the region. And they came back in the late 19th century uh, to really take control of it and to start integrating it into the empire, which then became Republican China, the same borders, and eventually after 1949, the People's Republic of China. But even, even uh, though uh, it, it was integrated, increasingly integrated into modern China, I would say, you know, through the first 30 years of Chinese communist rule, they had somewhat loose control of this area. They looked at it as more of a buffer zone to keep out um, Western enemies, you know, the Soviet Union, the just general West um, as they viewed it as a threat. Um, and they didn't really take control particularly of its Southern reaches, which were um, Uyghur majority. Um, you know, the PRC did uh, populate the area significantly with Han Chinese um, after the revolution. So in 1949, the percentage of Chinese in this region was 6%. Um, by 1963, uh, uh, I think it was, it was 35%. Um, so that was a massive movement of people, but those people were mostly concentrated in the north of the region, which had um, transportation links with the rest of China. And the south had been kind of left undeveloped, you know. And uh, I went there first in the 1990s, and you would go to the south of the Uyghur region, um, and you would not even really think you were in China. Um, you know, there were, most Uyghurs did not speak Chinese. Um, you know, the Communist Party had influence, um, you know, and certainly had tried to make more um, influence in the region during the Cultural Revolution, but it, it hadn't really developed the region and made it a part of modern China. And I, I think that since the 1990s, that's been the goal. And, um, you know, it's been the goal throughout the whole country as, as you know, they've They've discovered the global economy. Um, you know, I think it's kind of ridiculous to even refer to China now as a socialist country. You know, it's more of a state capitalist country. Um, and uh, that's led to massive development everywhere. So starting in the 1990s, there was more attention to the area. And then after 2000, increasingly so, um, the Chinese government wanted to make this area look like the rest of China. Um, and I think, you know, that after Xi Jinping came to power, 
um, that also um, was influenced by, you know, his goals in the Belt and Road Initiative, because this being a frontier area in the west of China, um, it was the main um, main inroad, you know, the main land port to uh, the South Asia, to um, West Asia, and to Europe eventually. So um, it became a very important place. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, as the state was developing the region and they were encountering some resistance from Uyghurs, at some point Xi Jinping kind of switched, uh, you know, a switch on that made him say, you know what, these people are superfluous to our goals. We should just get rid of them. And that's, that seems to be what's happening now. So, you know, uh, long time leader, uh, readers and listeners are probably tired of hearing me say this, but I am very much a free market libertarian. I don't, I don't, I don't apologize for that. Um, and that, which means that I find myself in weird spots because sometimes on the, I agree with the right, sometimes I agree with the left, but I kind of have these principles that kind of find myself in odd spots. And so when you look at China, um, you talk about what they're trying to do with the Uyghurs and it's not just them, it's Hong Kong. And now we're seeing, you know, pushes in Taiwan. One of the things that I've told people, um, you know, average Americans over here in the West, um, we have a lot of problems of our own going on our own country. But one of the things I think that Americans kind of don't understand, because we have uh, the right to protest and, and uh, freedom of speech against our government, is that that is exactly the opposite of what the CCP and Xi Jinping want. And so um, when you look at what's happening with the Uyghurs and they're trying to revamp or revitalize or you know, take over or colonize, however you, want to, however you want to phrase it, part of that is they don't want ideas out there. They don't want um, differing thoughts because that is the, the, the thing that I don't, I don't know if scares them, um, but it, it concerns them the most. And for me, for a foreign policy standpoint, it's so frustrating to watch our leaders or Western leaders not talk about it because that's, I mean, we're not going in there with guns blazing or bombing, you know, China. And I'm not advocating that for, that for sure. And we're not going to do it. Um, but it feels like if you look at what China does with the Uyghurs or in Hong Kong, they're suppressing speech. Now, more than speech has to happen. But uh, in the West, we, if it seems like we should talk about this more because that's exactly what they don't want talking about us. And because there are Chinese nationals all around us and all over the world, we should be talking about this issue more. It, it, I'm curious your thoughts on that because it, it seems like it's the fundamental thing that they don't want us to do. And so by not doing it, we're actually playing into their hands and we know they don't want us to do it by how they act in their country. So why do we not talk about it outside their country? So I'm curious, how do you view all those things? Because to me, it's, it's mind boggling that more people just don't go, huh, they don't want us to talk about it. So we're going to talk about it just to like, that's what we can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting from a libertarian perspective, I'd say um, it's not only speech, it's, you know, all development in China is state led. Um, and, and one of the things that the, the Chinese, I mean, the, the, the Uyghur crisis is bringing to light is the, the very strong connections between the private sector and the state in China. It's not, um, everything is is in step everything is really state led um you know i mean the disappearance of jack ma is <laughs> you know a case in point um and i think that um even though uh that means you know they can they can um participate in the global economy 
they can, you know, um, they can have factories for Apple and Nike and VW and all these things. Um, that doesn't mean they're playing by the same rules because everything is state led um, and everything has to be in step with um, state policies. And, and I think one of the things that um, a lot of my colleagues, you know, who are, are political scientists, I'm more, I'm an anthropologist by background, but they're looking at state policy and they're saying, you know, another aspect of what's happening to the Uyghurs is that Xi Jinping has taken on an idea um, that has been talked about for a while in the policy circles in China, but it has been kind of on the fringe. This idea uh, that they claim, you know, is really the American idea of ethnic difference, which is, you know, we're all Chinese. Um, we're, you know, just like Americans are all American. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't really work with a group that lives on their homeland. Um, they don't feel that they're Chinese. And there's, there's an increasing attempt to try to make um, the idea of being Chinese all based on the Han um, culture. And so, uh, you know, along that, that line of logic, Basically, Uyghurs have to become like Han. They have to speak the Han language. They have to uh, observe Han traditions. Um, that means something like Islam, you know, can't be a part of um, their worldview, uh, their beliefs, or anything. Um, and and so, you know, we're seeing this this huge social engineering program going on where they're trying to make. Um, forcibly make Uyghurs into Han. Um, that involves, you know, the ones who resist, you know, they're just going to end up in prison or interned in camps forever. Um, the ones who want to stay alive uh, and participate in society have to be, you know, in step line, um, indistinguishable culturally from Han. Um, and, and then there's an added problem with, of that with um, the Uyghurs because the Uyghurs are one of the, only, I'd say they're the, the, the only large minority in China um, that is very physically distinguishable from Han. So there's like a racial element to it. They can never really just blend into the Han uh, population. Um, and so, you know, some of the really insidious things happening is the state is trying to uh, coerce um, miscegenation, uh, basically having Uyghur women marry Han men, um, which would, you know, eventually uh, potentially make Uyghurs look more like Han. Yeah, and so I'm glad you brought that up because um, I think, help me make sure I'm understanding how this plays out practically. Uh, there was someone, um, God, it's been a couple years ago, they were talking about something with, uh, maybe it was uh, Africans that were, over, Black Africans that were over there, or it was the Uyghurs, and they're like, look at how they treat these people, and then someone responded, well, the, the way the Chinese actually handle this is, is, is very similar to what you're saying, and it, it kind of prevents them, at least in internally, from being accused of being racist or xenophobic, because they kind of have this, everyone's going to be Chinese, and it kind of shields them, at least in their perspective from being accused of this thing, which then in turn, they lob those accusations at the West or, or whoever, because um, it's, it's different because we're not handling the same way, which is a, it's kind of a fascinating way that they've, that they've gone about that. And um, it, 
anyways, I think that's kind of what you were you, uh, you were getting at. And, and do you agree with that assessment? That's kind of how they handle it, and that that from their perspective shields them from those criticisms. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I think I think what they're doing with the Uyghurs is, is I mean, I mean, literally, you know, I. Um, uh, one of the things that was interesting in working on the book was that there's been things Uyghurs have told me over the years where I've thought they've over-exaggerated. Mm. And um, with more and more information coming out about what's happening now, it seems that um, in most of those cases, there was no over-exaggeration. Um, you know, they, there's a state campaign. And of course, you know, Han um, uh, have a, have a, a marriage market problem because with the one child policy you you had people aborting girls because they wanted a boy child if they could only have one child which means there's not enough han women to go around right. in the marriage market and so there's a state program now promoting um for han men to go and marry uyghur women and uh, Uyghur women can't really turn this down because if they turn it down, they're accused of being extremists and put in internment camp. Um, so uh, it's, it's really insidious that way. But I think the other point you're making, which is important to understand is, is China's response to any criticism is always about whataboutism. Um, you know, so, I've even I've encountered uh, you know Chinese people responding uh, to things I've written and so on, saying, "Well, America did that to the Native Americans," uh -huh. you know, and I say, "Well, <laughs> yes, you know, I think that you have a point there, but that doesn't mean it's right, right? You know, I mean, that doesn't mean that we should be doing in the 21st century some of the horrible things that uh, states did in the 19th century." Um, and, um, you know, the, the war on terror feeds into this as well. It's like, well, you know, what we're doing to prevent terrorism is not as bad as, um, assassinations with drones, you know, um, and, uh, but that's not the point, right? Um, you know, <laughs> the, the U.S., uh, whatever you think about, um, that tactic, which I think, I think is the wrong tactic, but uh, it targets specifics, you know, small groups of extremists, where the Chinese government is, is is basically targeting the entire ethnic group. You know, I mean, a lot of the people, a lot of the Uyghurs who were imprisoned first, were intellectuals who were more from this kind of secular uh, idea of being cultural Muslims. You know, they were not. You know, you you could not draw any line between them and um, extremist uh, Islam, you know, you, you, many of these people were, were party members. Um, so, so this whataboutism has become, and, and it's even in recent, you know, in the last year, um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of China has deployed its diplomats on Twitter. Oh yeah, oh to, yeah. To use this whataboutism against people. Did you see the tweet from a few weeks ago? With the Uyghurs uh, saying coming out, there was like, uh, the Uyghurs were it wasn't the Uyghurs, but it was the the Chinese embassy was had a yeah. I pulled up here, and the Uyghurs were saying that they you know they work hard and they appreciate they you know they all this stuff. Oh my gosh, it was it was. Well, and they said they said well you know, Uyghur women used to be baby machines. We're stopping them from doing that, 
yeah. make a modern woman, you know, by by involuntary sterilization, basically. Although they didn't they didn't use that terminology. Yeah, here it says, uh, "We Uyghurs have a saying: two pennies earned with one with one's hard work is better than a mountain given by the emperor." We want good. We want good life, so we work and make money with our hand and work. And why would we need to be forced to do so? That's a tweet from the Chinese U.S. Uh, Chinese embassy in U.S. Um, on January eighth. And the frustration, just just real quick, because I got to get a shot. At Twitter in here is they finally, I think, locked him out of their account, but they do not have this tweet marked as disputed or fraudulent or anything. They just leave it up here as if this is a viable position for anyone yeah. to espouse with the weaker atrocity and so it's it's a it's a point of uh frustration for me to put it to put it nicely yeah 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 so i mean it's um it is a very difficult issue and i guess to get back to your question about you know what what the west should be doing um you know i think i think that there really has to be um economic consequences for this, because I think that's the only thing that's going to change the situation. I mean, to be honest, when you when you deal with any um, internal human rights issue in uh, another state, you cannot force a state right. to change, right? right. But um, you can make it um, very um, clear that if it doesn't change, it's going to be a big problem for them. And I think that has to be on the economic side because um, that's that's where China sees its strength. And you know, I think one of the um, one of the initiatives right now that's um, in the Senate for vote, it was already passed by the House, is um, the Uyghur Forced Labor Pre uh, Prevention Act. And um, a lot of big American corporations are, are lobbying against this because. It's basically saying that the U.S. will not allow in any products that have Uyghur forced labor in their supply chain. And the forced labor program that the state's using against the Uyghurs, um, you know, it's, it's putting a lot of Uyghurs in factories in their own region, but it's also spreading them out throughout China um, to get them out of their region, again, to displace them from their homeland. And um, they're being parsed out to all these factories. So, you know, some of the uh, investigations into this have, have shown that, you know, there's Uyghur forced labor in um, the factory that makes you know, the camera lens for uh, the Apple iPhone. Mm -hmm. There's uh, Uyghur forced labor in the supply chain of Nike sneakers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so these, and so I think the thing is, is, that kind of position is also going to cause some economic pain uh, to those corporations. Um, but I think it's it, it has to be done um, because we can't really put uh, corporate profits ahead of our values and what we think is important to the world um, in terms of, of a global system where human rights are respected. No, yeah, so I agree. And, and the, the problem, so I agree with what you say. The, the problem, I think, is um, there are so many, as you, you know, you could probably pick a long list of the supply chains that the Uyghur forced um, uh, labor is touching. And so you get to it, and I'm looking at my iPhone right here when you said that. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. Okay, so there's my iPhone. Uh, I don't have a pair of Nikes, but I've got shoes that, you know, could be made. And so, you know, for, for the average American, it's kind of tough because it's like, oh, well, you know, 
I can't cut out everything because I, I simply can't research all of the forced labor. Um, yeah. And so I do, but I do think there are things we can do, which is kind of my point about always talking about the Uyghur issue. Because the more you talk about it, the more it comes normalized. That is what the CCP just doesn't want at the, at the state level. Um, the, the you know President Biden or Secretary of State or, or you know UN or whatever. Um, to me. I also think that talking about it there more often, because if you see how China responds, if you look at how China responds, when people talk about things they don't like, you know, if we go back to the you know, free Hong Kong tweet from Daryl Morey, which is the biggest overreaction of all time, I, I couldn't imagine if, you know, if Biden administration in his first meeting with Xi Jinping says, hey, we got to talk about the Uyghurs, um, if he was sitting there and, um, you know, how they would respond to that. So I think that that for me, because I do, again, not call for war. There's not a lot you can do. Um, you're kind of in this tough spot, but just making them acknowledge it or deny it or something and constantly pounding them with it will force them to respond. And then the corporations, to your point, they're going to have to respond on how they're going to handle it. Because if yeah. you, you know, and, and so uh, a lot of Americans don't really understand this weaker issue. So for me, talking about it, listen, it's not the best thing. Obviously, I think there's other things we could do, but um, kind of getting this groundswell of people who are just willing to openly talk about it um, and force these companies to say something. Um, and hopefully that gets to the presidential level or the UN where, there, where there's more conversation. Um, I just think, I don't know. I think oh, if you look at how China's responded to, to free speech over the past year or two, especially the new security law, that's not going to go over well, but we have to push them to a direction to respond. That, that, that's kind of my, I guess, long-winded take, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I think, you know, I mean, I think uh, you're right. I mean, I've noticed um, now more than, uh, you know, even a decade ago, or even five years ago, probably, um, corporations are very quick. There's been lots of companies that have immediately, you know, when it's been exposed that there's Uyghur forced labor in their supply chains, they've immediately abandoned mm -hmm. um those suppliers, um, you know, because now, you know, the PR firms of corporations, there's more and more consumer advocacy where, where people um, say, okay, I'm not going to buy that product. Right. And, um, and so, you know, companies have been very quick, and this is particularly true with the apparel uh, clothing industry, because um, the Uyghur region supplies uh, the lion's share of cotton um, and also using forced labor uh, for China. And, you know, Lord knows how many of our clothes are produced in China. So, I mean, I think that gradually the thing that, that may change Beijing's behavior is, um, you know, the kind of gradual um, retreat of international corporations from China. You know, there are, there are, uh, th there's been a lot of discussion of this decoupling, as people call it, um, you know, because we've become so entangled with China's economy. Um, and I think this shouldn't be thought of in geopolitical terms, like, you know, we got to prevent China's rise. This is just a moral issue that um, we don't want to be complicit in this kind of behavior. Um, and... Uh, you know, there's lots of other places um, that you can have factories. Um, in fact, I think even before uh, some of these human rights abuses, a lot of companies started moving out of China because, you know, they found there were there there were other places in Asia um, where they had comparable um, opportunities to do production, um, and uh, they didn't face they didn't face the same kind of corruption issues. 
as as we're in China, you know. So I mean, there and and just in just the kind of the state interference in their work and and all of that. And so, you know, I think that you're going to see um, increasingly uh, a detachment from um, production in China by major international brands. Uh, and I think. I, I, my hope is because I, I think that really for the situation to change, I think Xi Jinping um, is part of the problem. Mm. And for, you know, for China to get out of its present situation with the Uyghurs, because if it just stopped interning people now, things would not go back to normal. I mean, you know, there'd be a lot of pissed off people. Right. right. And and so I mean I think somebody's going to have to take the fall for it. It's going to have to be Xi Jinping because he's already totally bought into the strategy in the Uyghur region and and kind of you know taking it on himself. So, um, but that's you know those kinds of changes are are not you know um, uh, impossible to see. I mean um, we've seen them all over the world. You know that there's dictators who establish a really strong position until, um, you know, those around him uh, start to say, you know what, this guy is not in our best interest. And, um, you know, I think in China, uh, she is really trying to, um, to rein in all of the economic elite. So they're dependent on him. Um, and that may make that difficult, but at some point, I think that elite is going to say, you know what, this guy is not making our life um, easier. You know, I, I think that's well said. And, and one of the things that, that well, I, I'm always careful when you're talking about issues like this is, you know, you could say, hey, Joe Biden or you know, UN, go in there and make sure no company can work in there. Well, that might make it worse for the Uyghurs. You know, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't pretend to have the solution on, how, I mean, I, okay, I have some ideas, <laughs> right. But I don't pretend to say what is step one um, because this is a complex issue. You've got obviously the CCP, you got the Uyghurs and what they're going to want to do and people have been moved and forced marriages. And listen, we get practical on a person's life. It, it gets very, it gets very entangled. Um, and so I think that's a very, very astute point to make that. Um, yeah. We, we, we've got a lot of work to do. And so hopefully we can um, we gotta push this narrative. Okay, so I want people. Obviously, the, the book is called "The War on the Uyghurs." Um, let's give them maybe. I, I got two more questions for you. I think so. First one is: You said you talked to the Uyghurs. How do they handle the propaganda? Um, it, does it depress them? Do they ignore it? Can they get outside information? I can't imagine being in a spot where we are in 2021, where we have access to all this information in the world, and then you're in this spot where you're getting pounded with propaganda, and you probably struggle to get outside information. How do they deal with that? Because it's got to be, um, on top of just the, the, the physical things that are going on, just dealing with that propaganda, like, how, how do they deal with, A, trying to balance out what their, what their reality is for them, so they have the practical on the ground, hey, this is what the government's saying, what are they doing? And then, as you mentioned earlier, getting their story out and so that in a way that people would believe them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so um, now, it, right now, it's almost impossible to talk to Uyghurs right. inside China, right? Um, I mean, I've had some interactions with some who don't live in the Uyghur region, who live, um, you know, in cities in central China who, you know, have somehow been able to kind of navigate VPNs and stuff to communicate um, in surreptitious ways, but um, uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of Uyghurs. The situation got much worse for them 
uh, after 2009, and you had a, a massive exodus of Uyghurs who left China. Um, and I talked to a lot of those people, um, uh, particularly a lot of them went to Turkey because Turkey was one of the only countries that would basically accept them, you know, with no issue. Uh -huh. um, they didn't give, Turkey didn't give them citizenship. They give them one year residency cards. Um, but um, so far it has not, it has not extradited significant numbers of Uyghurs, even though it's, it's, sign, it's signed an extradition treaty with the Chinese government, which everybody's watching very closely right now. Um, but so, you know, I think for, for a lot of the Uyghurs and, and um, the one person I had spoke to who, who left, you know, just in 2017, um, that person, um, you know, described a situation that's reminiscent of um, life during the Stalinist purges, right? Where you, you couldn't talk to anybody, um, you know, you were in constant fear of a knock on the door to be dragged away under some pretext. Um, there's, you know, undoubtedly, some people ratting out each other to try to gain, you know, a position um, of safety. Um, you know, I think it's, it's just a horrible situation for those who are living inside, you know. Um, for those who are living outside, the Chinese government's also harassing them. Uh, you know, starting in 2017, they started calling Uyghurs in diaspora and saying, hey, um, we need information on your address, on your profession, on your um, email, on your, um, you know, all of your communication information, um, you know, and, and they were, they were basically threatening people saying, and, and some, some of these communications were very direct about saying, you know, to those people who were speaking out about what was happening that their parents had disappeared or their brothers or sisters had disappeared. They said, if you don't, you know, if, if you don't stop talking about this, there's going to be really bad things that happen to your family members. If you stop talking about it, you know, they might get out. Um, and, um, you know, so it's been very difficult for a lot of Uyghurs in diaspora where they feel that, um, you know, they're, they're constantly uh, consumed with this issue about their family members yeah. and, and feeling guilty about, you know, maybe the tweet I put out about this is why my mother ended up in an internment camp, you know, um, or maybe if I had done more to speak out, maybe, you know, we could have got her out. And, and it's, it's, it's psychological pressure that crosses borders. And, and it, you know, frankly, this is illegal in most countries, but it's um, very difficult to track in the, in the uh, days of voice over internet protocol, telephone calls, you know, because you can't really tell where these phone calls came from. Um, and, uh, you know, so that pressure, I think, is really intense. Uh, and the one thing that's interesting, and I think one of the, one of, um, the indications of how widespread this problem is, is that, you know, 10 years ago, uh, I've been studying Uyghurs for a long time, for about 30 years. I mean, I, I always knew the group of uh, Uyghur activists 
You know, there's always a small group of activists who had their own organizations in the US and Germany and so on to try to get attention to the plight of Uyghurs. But most Uyghur refugees, while they would support those organizations, they would be in the background. They would be, you know, saying, I, I'm not, you know, politics is not my thing. You know, maybe I'll give money to this organization, but I'm not going to speak out myself. Suddenly in the last four years, Uyghurs all over the world are speaking out about this because it's become a personal issue. Yeah, and you know the, the thing, my concern for them is not only that, but the new with new Hong Kong or not, I keep calling Hong Kong security laws, but the new security laws is that you know all those problems are going to be um, exacerbated for the foreseeable future, which is another issue that the that the West has to take up with China, in my opinion. But that's that's a that's a story for another show. Um, so listen, first off, and it's in all seriousness, thank you for the book. I think this is an issue. There are human rights violations going all around the world, so you can't keep up with all of them. But this is one that um, I think is important for Americans, especially uh, with our relationship to China. I, I, I've said in my writing and publicly that I have no problem with anyone doing business with China. Just be honest about what's going on. And, and, and so that's what I try to do is try to be honest about what's going on with China, what's going on with the U.S., and try to get my, my take on it. And so this is a problem that we need to resolve. Um, China is not going anywhere, I don't think. Um, we're not going where I don't think either. So therefore, we're going to work together. But uh, working together sometimes means you have to figure out some of these nasty issues, and this is a, a terrible one that we need to work on. And it's, it's you have the you have the weaker issue, but the weaker issue is simply as uh, a, a microcosm of larger issues uh, inside of China. And so, um, um, working on this one also works on other things as well, I think. And so, um, anyways, so thank you again for this book. We will link to it. Uh, in the newsletter for everyone. It's called The War on the Uyghurs. Do you have any more books or projects coming out? Where can people follow your work? Anything that you want to mention about the book or the Uyghurs that we didn't talk about? I'll let you just kind of give your final thoughts on on, on, the, on those things. Yeah, well, um, you can follow me um, at, uh, at Robert's Report on Twitter. Um, I, I'm often, um, you know, uh, retweeting important work by other people as well on this issue. Um, I have a lot of colleagues doing different types of research. My, my, um, I came to this topic uh, from Central Asia. So I don't read and speak Chinese. I read and speak Uyghur, uh, Russian, and Uzbek. Um, but some of my colleagues who are reading Chinese um, are, are really uncovering a some amazing things from uh, Chinese social media um, that expose exactly what the Chinese government's doing to Uyghurs, uh, you know, including from like uh, local newspapers in the Uyghur region, um, and also from things like Weibo and um, WeChat and so on, where people are uh, basically talking about their experiences uh, working in the security apparatus out there and how crazy it is, um, you know, Han people who are writing that. So there's a lot of information out there um, about it. Uh, I think my book is, is a really good place to start uh, and you can get kind of an overview, um, but it's, it's an issue that I don't think is going away uh, I think it's an issue that's going to have a lot of impact on the world. Um, as I think I said earlier, you know, I, I think it sets a really dangerous precedent if um, this goes unex unexposed and, and um, there's not more pressure put on China over this issue. Um, 
And it's not only about other states adopting similar um, approaches to minorities. I mean, you can see that even in India's reactions to Kashmir over the last um, you know, half a year, um, they basically are looking at what China's doing and saying, well, nobody's giving them trouble on that. Why don't we get rid of our disliked minority? Um, there's that aspect, but then there's also um, the massive electronic surveillance that's being used to um, basically uh, follow everything Uyghurs do, um, which can kind of force them to be complicit in anything the state wants from them. Um, and that technology, which includes artificial intelligence, facial recognition software, all being used um, in a in a oppressive way against uh, racially profiled people. I mean, it includes facial recognition software that um, raises a red flag when it says when it sees a Uyghur face on the street. Now, you know that is is technology we don't want China exporting to other autocratic states around the world. Um, you know, we could be looking at a lot more genocidal actions uh, around the world if if this continues unfettered. Okay, and also um, I do follow you on Twitter, but I did not realize you guys, you either, you're part of a Substack or let's see here, you, you wrote for a Substack account called uh, Persuasion? Ah, uh, yes, yes, yeah. I just, I just uh, published a piece on, um, you know, basically things that I think the Biden administration could do um, with regards to this issue. Um, and uh, I don't regularly write for them, but um, uh, you know, I, I, I do write um, for different um, internet publications when requested on the issue because I, I really feel it's important to get out information, as you said, uh, to different audiences. You know, I, I've written for Foreign Policy uh, recently, uh, did not bet in The Guardian in the UK. Um, you know, and, and I'll continue to do those kinds of things. Um, and uh, a lot of my colleagues are doing that as well. Um, and as I said, you know, on Twitter, I'll, I try to highlight a lot of those things that uh, I encourage people interested in this issue just to, to read more about it, to follow what's happening, because um, it's, it's really disturbing to see this in the 21st century. Agreed. It is a bipartisan issue, or if you include include us crazy libertarian, a tripartisan issue. And so everyone should be behind um, looking at this. And it doesn't take a lot of time. It's pretty simple. Just um, be sure to you know support it when you can and get the conversation going. Um, I think I think we often the average citizen just doesn't realize um, just a little bit of conversation goes a long way. And then of course. At the policy level, there are things that are, you know, um, I know um, the next time we have our Bush China Foundation meeting, it's one of the things that I will be bringing up at that is, hey, guys, you know, we, we've got to be talking about this uh, more regularly. Okay, um, Mr. Roberts, thank you so much again for your time today. Thank you for the book. We will link to that. Um, so everyone go hopefully go pick up a copy. Uh, be sure to follow his work. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Any final things before we get out here today? Um. I, I don't think so. I think that, I mean, I think one thing I, I guess I should just quickly for those of you who, who don't follow the issue is just kind of mention some of the tactics that have been used. I mean, so 
starting in, in 2017, we first learned about this because um, there was a scholar who was, who was following um, uh, Chinese state procurements on the internet and found that there were massive procurements to build penal facilities throughout the Uyghur region, unprecedented amounts of them. And uh, subsequently, people started looking at uh, satellite imagery and seeing this. We started hearing from Uyghurs abroad that they had lost contact with family members. Family members had disappeared. Some family members told Uyghurs abroad not to contact them because one of the things they could land you in uh, an internment center or prison was contact with uh, family members who were living abroad. Um, Subsequently, um, you know, probably upwards of 10% of the population has been put either in prisons or internment camps, maybe even more uh, than 10%. Um, there's been different estimates about that, but I think at it, the it very least 10%, you know, um, probably uh, possibly 20%. And um, there's, um, there's also been a long line alongside this basically destruction of any kind of Uyghur cultural monuments in the region, uh, including mosques, um, uh, cemeteries, um, other cultural monuments, um, pilgrimage sites. Um, there's been uh, the employment of this forced labor program, which is very um, I think it's, it can be a little bit complicated to understand, but essentially um, they're taking both people who have been formerly interned and other Uyghurs, particularly from rural areas and forcing them to go into these residential labor programs where they're segregated from other workers and they're subjected to the same propaganda um, uh, measures that are um, subjected to Uyghurs in internment camps. Um, and those people, as I, I mentioned earlier, are, are spread out through the whole region. So there's, there's a lot happening. Um, and uh, there's also been significant evidence of forced sterilization. Um, and uh, as the Trump administration, Pompeo, one of his last acts was to basically deem this a genocide. And his successor, Anthony Blinken, um, has said that he basically agrees with that assessment. So you can understand how grave the situation is. Yeah, I thought that was a nice parting gift Pompeo gave the Biden administration so that they didn't they didn't have to come out and do it. Um, Pompeo did it. All they had to do was, was hold the line. They didn't have to uh, be the first ones to wait off in there. And then Biden had already said something similar, I think, back in like August uh, with right. the campaign. So, That's right. so it's, it's possible he would have done it on his own, but they didn't have to because the Trump administration hand them a gift, at least. Um, that's how I view it, at least. Okay, uh, Mr. Roberts, thank you so much. Listeners, thank you so much, and we will be back. I think we this is uh, Thursday, but it's on Thursday, so we've got Scott Horton, which will be on, uh, I believe, Tuesday. Talk to you then.